Okay, good to see you tonight. Uh, <clears throat> we, we uh, uh, um, let's see, I think, where is he? Where, where, where did my boy go? There we are, there we are. David, did you get through chapter seven and up to chapter seven? That's what I was thinking. I, I watched it, but I it would spend two weeks, and I couldn't remember uh, for sure. Okay, we're going to uh, just take, hopefully, just a few minutes to finish reading and uh, filling in our chart in the book. I'm, I hope you had a chart. We, I didn't realize that we, there are no charts left uh, that were printed. Uh, but at any rate, uh, you, you will be able, if, if you'd like, when we get done with this and you would like a, a whole filled in chart, uh, you're welcome to email me uh, and I will uh, send you one. If you don't email me, I will not send you one. So, because <laughs> even if you told me at the back door, I'd forget by the time I got home. So you, you have to email me. <clears throat> All right, so uh, let's, uh, where we are in the book, you might remember that uh, everything right now is at a turning point. Uh, we have uh, Haman who thought this particular day when he got up early and went into the uh, king, hoping to get an agreement from the king that uh, he could kill Mordecai before he went to uh, dinner with uh, uh, the king and with Esther. And instead, the king uh, asked him uh, who he could honor. And, uh, of course, uh, Haman, being the arrogant uh, ding-dong that he is, he thought surely he would be the only one God, the king would want to honor. And he said, well, I just think he ought to be robed with the royal robes, especially a robe the king had already worn, and, uh, and, and let him be paraded to the streets, etc. And, and of course, the king says, well, uh, do that for Mordecai. And, uh, and so here we are, chapter 6, verse 10, uh, the, uh, Mordecai, I mean, Haman goes back to his house and is bemoaning the fact that he's in this condition. And Haman's wife says, well, um, I know I told you to build a gallows, but now you're going <laughs> to... You're, you're going to fall before them. So the, you see this this turning point there. So chapter six, verse ten, and then and when we, uh, excuse me, uh, chapter six, verse fourteen. Uh, while they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived. They quickly brought Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman came to dine with Queen Esther. On the second day of the banquet of the wine, of wine, the king asked Esther, "What is your request, Queen Esther? It should be granted to you. And what is your petition? Ask for up to half the kingdom, and it shall be done." Queen Esther replied, "If I have met with your approval, O king, and if the king is so inclined, grant me my life as my request." and my people as my petition. For we have been sold, both I and my people, to destruction and to slaughter and to annihilation. If we had simply been sold as male and female slaves, I would have remained silent, for such distress would not have been sufficient for troubling the king. The king, and then the king Ahasuerus, uh, responded to Queen Esther, Who is this individual? Where is this person to be found? Who is presumptuous enough to act in this way? And Esther
master replied, the oppressor and enemy is this evil Haman. Then Haman became terrified in the presence of the king and the queen. Enraged, the king <coughs> arose from the banquet and of wine and withdrew to the palace garden. Meanwhile, Haman stood to beg Queen Esther for his life, for he realized that the king had now determined a catastrophic end for him. When the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet of wine, Haman was throwing himself down on the couch where Esther was lying. The king exclaimed, Will he also attempt to rape the queen while I am still in the building? As these words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Indeed, there is the gallows that Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke out on the king's behalf. It stands near Haman's home and is 75 feet high. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the very gallows that he prepared for Mordecai, the king's, and the king's rage was abated. All right. Take just a second and take 60 seconds. Write down two or three events. We're not looking for applications here. That's what you messed David up with last time. You know, we're not looking for details. We're looking for what are the events here. Just jot them down on your chart and uh, so that you have that before you. Okay, good. What are the, uh, what events do you see? Just broad events that, that you can write down so, we can, so you can follow the uh, storyline. What events take place here? Esther gives a feast. Pardon? Esther gives her second feast to the king. Of okay, Esther has the second feast. So now we've had the first feast the day before. Now we have, now we have the second feast. All right, next. Okay, interesting way she requests. She says, well, I, I just want to request that you save my life. <laughs> you can imagine the king being a little, what? <laughs> With that little statement? Yeah, please save my life and the life of my people. So we have Esther's request then. King gets angry. Yeah, yeah the king, well, the first thing king does is say, who is this person? <laughs> he has no idea. Uh, that's uh, give you an idea of how uh, clued in he is to what's to his king, kingdom's events. But you know, who is this person? And of course, she can you imagine being Haman at that moment? And she says, "It's this wicked Haman." Almost reminds you of Nathan the prophet with his uh, words, his parable to King David, and uh, and says, "You are the man." Uh, so here is that, and uh, then finally. Okay, so uh, not Mordecai. I mean, <laughs> yeah, so Haman gets hanged on his own gallows. Uh, just before that, uh, what does Haman do? He <laughs> throws himself on the couch where Esther is, bleeding with her. And as we could say uh, dozens of times throughout this story, it just so happened. 
the king walked in right at that time. You know, if they'd make a decent movie on this, it would be so much fun. Uh, saw a movie on it just a few months ago to see how they came up with it, and they ruined the story so badly, it was absolutely ridiculous. So there you go. All right, so those are our events. Let's go on to chapter uh, chapter 8. Let me see. Uh, I'll put these up here as uh, I put them up. Yeah. Would you talk about the, the reversal of pride and what it ended up being just no. a flash? Yeah, I know. It's That'll be something we'll talk about later. That, that's, oops, don't do that. I can't believe I just hit the back button and uh, it, era it just erased everything I <laughs> had up there. All right. Um, I'll keep pushing this button while I read. All right, chapter 8, verse 1. In that same day, King Ahasuerus gave the estate of Haman, the adversary, um, to uh, the estate of Haman, the, the, the adversary of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Now Mordecai had come before the king, for Esther had revealed how he was related to her. The king then removed his signet ring, the very one he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther designated Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's estate. Then Esther again spoke with the king, falling at his feet. She wept and begged him for mercy, that he might nullify the evil of Haman the Agagite, the Agagite and the plot that he had intended against the Jews. When the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, she arose and stood before the king. She said, If the king is so inclined... And if I have met with his approval, and if the matter is agreeable to the king, and if I am attracted to him, let the, an edict be written rescinding those recorded intentions of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote in order to destroy the Jews who are throughout all the king's provinces. For how can I watch the calamity that will befall my people, and how can I watch the destruction of my relatives? King Ahasuerus uh, replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Look, I have already given Haman's estate to Esther, and he has been hanged on the gallows because he took hostile action against the Jews. Now, write, uh, now write in the king's name whatever in your opinion is appropriate concerning the Jews and seal it with the king's signet ring. Any decree that is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring cannot be rescinded. And the king's scribe were quickly summoned, and in the third month, that is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, they wrote out everything that Mordecai instructed to the Jews and to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces, all the way from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, and to the Jews according to their own script and their own language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, uh, sealed it with the king's signet ring. He sent, then sent letters by couriers who rode royal horses that were very swift. The king thereby allowed the Jews who were in every city to assemble and to stand up for themselves to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any army 
army of whatever people or province that should become their adversaries, including their women and children, and to confiscate their property. This was to take place on a certain day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely on the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. A copy of the edict was to be presented as law throughout each and every province and made known to all peoples so that the Jews might be prepared on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who were riding the royal horses went forth with the king's edict without delay, and the law was presented in Susa, the citadel, as well. Now Mordecai went out from the king's presence in blue and white royal attire with a large golden crown and a purple linen mantle. The city of Susa shouted with joy, for the Jews were there were radiant, hap with, was radiant happiness and joyous honor. Throughout every province and throughout every city where the king's edict and his law arrived, the Jews experienced happiness and joy, banquets and holidays. Many of the resident peoples pretended to be Jews because the fear of the Jews had overcome them. Okay, um, quickly, write down key events in this chapter so that you can at least, when you look back at it, can see the story and how it took place. Okay, uh, first main event. Okay, so everything now is given over to Esther. So we have uh, Mordecai's exalted with the king's signet ring and everything is uh, switched from Haman now to, uh, to Mordecai and to Esther. And uh, uh, we, we're seeing, of course, again, just as was mentioned uh, by Wayne, this major, major reversal that is taking place. What next? Esther asked the king to revoke the law. Okay, so the king is that king. He asked the king. She asked him to revoke the law, and then he does what? Says, "Here's the signet ring. Write it however you want it. Right? <laughs> so you just you just go around. So Mordecai writes a royal decree to the Jews to defend themselves and take vengeance on their enemies. So everything now is uh, rejoicing throughout the whole area, and Mordecai is actually honored as royalty. He comes out of the of the, the the royal palace and he looks like royalty, uh, and uh, and everything is just absolutely." Absolutely amazing uh, because uh, Mordecai and his people now can defend themselves against what is what is about to happen. All right. Uh, anything else? Okay. Many rejoice with us. <laughs> yes. And so rejoicing is so much. It's such a reversal. There's a lot of people go, I think I'm at you too. <laughs> so yeah, there's 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 that major, major change. All right, good. Let's go nine one. In the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on its thirteenth day, the edict of the king and his law were to be executed. You might remember that's the day that Haman had chosen to kill the Jews. So this is the same day now the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. It was on that day that the enemies of the Jews had supposed that they would gain power over them, but contrary to expectations, the Jews gained power over their enemies. The Jews assembled themselves in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, 
to strike out against those who were seeking their harm. No one was able to stand before them, for dread of them fell on all the peoples. All the officials, the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who performed the king's business were assisting the Jews, for the dread of Mordecai had fallen on the Mordecai was of high rank in the king's palace, and word about him was spreading throughout all the provinces. His influence continued to be greater and greater. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, bringing death and destruction, and they did as they pleased with their enemies. In Susa, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. In addition, they also killed uh, Parshentadavath and Dalphon and Aspieth and all of those guys. And verse 10, the ten sons of Haman, son of Amadetha, and the enemy of the Jews, but they did not confiscate their property. On that same day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was brought to the king's attention. Then the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the king, Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? What is your request? It should be given to you. What other petition do you have? It shall be done. Esther replied, If the king is so inclined, let the Jews who are in Susa be permitted to act tomorrow also according to today's law, and let them hang the ten sons of Haman on the gallows. So the king issued orders for this to be done. A law was passed in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa then assembled on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, they, but they did not confiscate their property. The rest of the Jews who were throughout the provinces of the king assembled in order to stand up for themselves and to have re rest from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of their adversaries, but they did not confiscate their property. All this happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. Then they rested on the 14th day and made it a day of banqueting and happiness. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and 14th days and rested on the 15th, making it a day for banqueting and happiness. This is why the Jews who are in the rural country, those who live in rural villages, set aside the 14th day of the month of Adar for happiness, banqueting, a holiday, and sending gifts to uh, one another. Mordecai wrote these matters down and sent letters to all the Jews who were throughout all the provinces of King Asherah, uh, both near and far, to have them observe the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar each year as the time when the Jews gave themselves rest from their enemies, the month when their trouble was turned to happiness and their mourning to a holiday. These were to be the days of banqueting, happiness, sending gifts to one another, and providing for the poor. So the Jews committed themselves to continuing what they had begun to do and to what Mordecai had written them. For Haman, the son of Amadetha, uh, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised plans against the Jews to destroy them. He had cast pur, that is the lot, in order to afflict and destroy them. But when the matter came to the king's attention, the king gave written orders that Haman's evil intentions that he had devised against the Jews should fall on his own head. He and his sons were hanged on the gallows. For this reason, these days are known as Purim, after the name of Pure. Uh, therefore, because of the account found in this letter and what they had faced in this regard and what had happened to them, 
the Jews established as binding on themselves, their descendants, and all who joined company, that they should observe these two days without fail, just as written at the appropriate time on an annual basis. These days were to be remembered and to be celebrated in every generation, in every family, every province, in every city. The Jews were not to fail to observe these days of Purim. The remembrance of them was not to cease among the descendants. So Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the empire of Asherish, words of true peace. To establish these days of Purim in their proper times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established, and just as they had established both for themselves and their descendants, uh, matters pertaining to fasting and lamentation. Esther's command established these matters of Purim, and the matter was officially recorded. Okay, a lot of uh, details there, but just write down quickly um, the main events. Okay, what, uh, what events quickly did you see just to complete the story here? Okay, yeah, <laughs> they, they, uh, the day came and they defended themselves quite well. Uh, that's right, what else? Okay, so they established this Feast of Purim uh, in order to remember that, give that command that goes out through the entire empire. Exactly. Just before that. Uh, Esther, you can do anything else? And she said, let's do it again tomorrow. Yeah, let's do it again tomorrow. So Esther goes, well, you know, killing 500 in Susa wasn't quite enough. Why don't we do that again tomorrow? And how many did they kill that time? 75,000. Whew. Yeah, there are more in Susa, but altogether they had 75,000 uh, that are then killed. And so you have uh, the vengeance taking against, taken then against their enemies. Uh, what do you see with Mordecai here? He has honored more and more. He's exalted more and more. Everybody through the empire. Of course, we hear of, of rejoicing through the empire. Uh, they've been protected, and uh, and everything then has been has been satisfied. So Jews victorious over the enemies. Five hundred men and the ten sons of Haman are killed, and the nest requests an extra day of vengeance on the enemies, and seventy five thousand is killed, and Haman's sons are hanged, and then feasting and gladness and the feast of Purim is inaugurated. Chapter 10 is huge, as you can see. Uh, just uh, have, uh, oops, just have uh, three or three verses there. So King Ahasuerus then imposed forced labor on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Now all the actions carried out under his authority and his great achievements along with an exact statement concerning the greatness of Mordecai whom the king promoted, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. He was the highest ranking Jew and he was admired by his numerous relatives. He worked enthusiastically for the good of his people and was an advocate for the welfare of all his descendants. 
And so here's basically the epilogue of the book, which uh, in, emphasizes the high pop, uh, popularity of Mordecai. And we see then the vengeance of the Jews against their enemies have been, have been satisfied. Um, the, the thing there that should strike us as uh, at the bottom of your chart, some interesting moral discrepancies uh, is just the uh, way that Queen Esther uh, gets revenge or takes vengeance on the enemies and uh, you see her uh, saying, well, it's just not enough. Uh, for that one day to do all the killing we need to get done. And so you, you see that. You see a growth in Esther, her strength, her power, her, her uh, forthrightness. Uh, she's no longer this timid little girl who sits back and says, uh, well, I'm kind of scared to go before the king. She keeps going before the king. After that first event, she gains uh, quite a bit of, of strength during that time. Okay, and uh, top, top part of the chart, we just look at some uh, section summaries here. Uh, you would see the first, the first two chapters, the rise of Esther, and then the emphasis on the hopelessness in Israel as everything looks absolutely desperate. And then you have reversal and rescue. And then finally, God's unseen victory. Uh, and we'll talk more about this idea of providence of God's victory through this, even though God is not uh, part of any part of the story, any acknowledgement of God uh, whatsoever. Okay, so hopefully you have the story better in your mind. You can see this. I think it's really valuable to have a chart like this. And if you uh, have that, in fact, so some, uh, Deborah took a picture of it. That's a great way. Flip your phone out and take a picture. <laughs> take a picture of it and you'll have that. Uh, but uh, it's good to have that before your mind because you want to be able to see the flow then uh, of, of the chart. Okay, any Final things, we're not talking about applications yet, but any final things you wanted to note, you thought we ought to note on the chart as far as the overview of the book. Pretty good with that? Okay. All right. So what we're going to do now is switch over to, uh, you might remember when we started this, I said I'm not going to give you the introduction yet. So now we want to look at the broad picture of the things we should have, we should notice as far as the uniqueness of this particular book. So the things that we want to see, they're unique. And so that's the chart that I handed, I mean that's the uh, pages that I handed out for you. And that's what uh, we will now uh, take a look at and go over the screen just in our uh, last uh, 15 minutes. So let me escape this. And like I said, if you want the copy of that, uh, please let me know. Um, all right, so story of Esther here. Uh, this background part we've, we have talked about, so I won't spend any great time on it. But uh, first, uh, first we want to see this is, the, this is during the reign of this Persian king that the scripture calls Ahasuerus. <laughs> it's a real, uh, the, by the way, we know the Jews made fun of his name. 
and uh, I won't tell you all the ways they made fun of his name, but they made fun of his name uh, in a very derogatory way. So the book spans about a 10-year period in between 483 and 473. However, the king reigned from 486 to 465. So uh, we see that we know him by Xerxes, lots of history about him. Xerxes is probably the Greek translation of his Persian name. And uh, so that's, uh, that's how we know him historically. He's the successor of Dar uh, Darius, uh, under whom the temple of Jerusalem was rebuilt back in 520 to 516. You read about that in the book of Ezra. As I said, we've mentioned these things. So I'm just going to go through them quickly. Susa was one of four Persian capitals from which the Persian kings reigned. So it's, it's, uh, it's a place where they would go, different parts of the seasons of the year, and so this particular story happens when they're in Susa. Okay, so going beyond that, let's talk a little bit about the unique character of the book. We've touched on some of this, but we want to slow down now and talk about it a little bit more. First and foremost, if you took out every occurrence uh, of the word Jew from this story, you would have no reason to think this was a biblical record or that this should be added into the, into the Bible. It would just be as secular as it could be and probably would have been uh, stuffed aside and lost in the midst of uh, thousands of other uh, unique stories that have taken place in history. Been nothing to it. But instead, uh, this name Jew that is the only thing that goes through it that gives you any connection whatsoever with God is, is there in the book. And, and that's what we want to discover. Why is this book then so unique in that way about all other books of the Bible? Uh, there, and, and so even though the name Jew is there, there's nothing Jewish in the book. Did you notice that? What are the things that you would say were Jewish, that should have been J Jewish and mentioned in the book? What were things you would expect if there's a Jewish book? The Sabbath, please. Okay, how about a Sabbath day? <laughs> exactly. Where's the Sabbath day? No mention. Mark? It mentions fasting, but it doesn't say fasting. <laughs> exactly. Lots of nations fasted. Lots of people's fasted. We would expect fasting and prayer when we saw that. And we go fasting and, whoop, where's that? Just fasting. And, and you don't see Esther saying one word about everybody appeal to God. That would be what you would expect. Nope, uh, not that. What other uh, Jewish things that you, you, that you would expect? Okay. Food rituals, festivals, all the three yearly feasts, the various other things. There's all kinds of things that you would expect. Synagogues? No. No mention of that. So it is as secular as it, you could possibly be. Doesn't even seem to be a concern for God, for his law. Nothing is ascribed to God. Never once does anybody, does the writer say, oh, if it hadn't been for God. <laughs> or something like that. It's a very, very unique. No other book in the Bible would come close to having a style this way. 
which is the reason, by the way, that there are many over the history of the last couple of thousand years or so who have uh, complained that Esther was even in the Bible. Uh, it, it is a, some would even say, a disgusting, gross uh, story that should never have been placed in the pages of Holy Scripture. And that's the way it's looked at. So we, we, want, we want to, of course, uh, spend some time justifying that a little bit. Um, key characters of the book. Exemplary heroes like you would find in other books. Anybody uh, see the, uh, the greatness of Daniel in somebody here in this book? No? <laughs> You find nothing at all. As a matter of fact, you, you see uh, quite the opposite in this. Uh, Esther has no concern for dietary issues, like Daniel did. He has, she has no concern about her own Jewish identity. She will not advertise that. She loses her virginity before marriage to a Gentile king by winning a beauty contest. I mean, if you can't find anything more disgusting than that, I mean, that just grosses everybody out. It, what, what gets me is, is for how many years have we uh, Christians read and studied Esther, and what do we do with the story? Glorify her. We glorify her. We say, oh, she's just marvelous. And Mordecai was just the cat's meow. I mean, this is just, we are trying our best to read something into the book that doesn't exist. Which is making a huge mistake when we're trying to discover the original message. You don't need to help it out. You need to let it go. You need to see what's taking place here. So there, there, there's just all of this stuff. And then, uh, you know, even her urging an extra day to kill the enemies. <laughs> Yay, team. Let's just murder some more of them. <laughs> you know? I mean, they're already going, help. It's more along the lines of Samson, the story of Samson. Yeah, okay. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit, even though God is mentioned all the way through Samson's story, you know, God is obviously with him. Yeah, yeah. Now, now Samson wasn't a uh, a tremendously moral fellow. <laughs> that is certainly true. And then you you transfer that to like Mordecai. He's very secular, though a Jew, urges and supports Esther and all in her attempt to become a queen. Uh, by this beauty contest, sleeping with the king for one night, uh, etc. Et he triggers the murder of the Jews just because he won't show any honor to Haman. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> what, what is that? And so you, you're, just, you're just seeing these anomalies uh, that go on uh, through, throughout the book that is, that is quite interesting. Um, in other words, summarizing this, the book is simply uniquely non-religious. I mean, after all, does anybody worship in the book? Anything? <laughs> you don't have a worship of an idol, much less a worship of God. You don't see any worship in the book. Does God command anything? No, 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 no absolutely I mean, when not. When they decide to kill 75,000 no. children, no, God's I didn't. Hands, God's hands aren't on that. No, no, yeah, God didn't say to do that. There's, there's nothing in there to suggest that, that this was uh, anything here was directly commanded by God, Jerry. Well, I saw that 
incident, uh, uh, Mordecai, he had said uh, when he, they wanted everybody to, uh, to bow down to Haman, Haman, I can't pronounce his name. He wanted everybody to bow down to him because, you know, he was, he was it. <laughs> so he figured True. everybody should worship him and bow down to him. But I thought it was interesting when Mordecai says, I can't, I'm not going to do that because I'm a Jew. Okay, I don't think, don't think so. I thought I remembered. Yeah, don't 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 think so. Uh, uh, he just he just says he. Well, let's let's make sure of that. Okay, I don't want to say something that didn't isn't so. But uh, uh, go over here to be chapter two, right? Um, that, that where it is? Uh, yes. Uh, okay, and somebody finds it. Let me know. Um, is it chapter 3? Yeah. Verse 4. And when they spoke to him day after day, well, okay, verse 3. Um, uh, yeah, verse, verse 3. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Uh, verse 2. And all the king's servants were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now see, this is not, he doesn't say anything about, I'm a Jew, I'm not doing this. Plus, this isn't about worshiping. There's nothing in this about worshiping him. It is about, he is higher than you, and you are to give honor to him. Read the next couple of verses. Three and four, okay. Um, and when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see what Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Yeah, he told. Yeah, okay, that's that's where you get uh, good, Sherry. Uh, but but he told them he's a Jew. But there's nothing said about. So what? You know, so what? Yeah, Danny. Yeah, and that was, of course, eating the, the, the food and stuff. And this is also different than Daniel or his three friends bowing down to an image. That's not what's taking place here. Um, you, you will see in the reign of King David or other kings in the Bible that when people come before the king, they bow. So that's, that's the idea. It's not something different than that. Yes, sir. I may be wrong, but wasn't it the Jewish law? Wasn't that the Jewish law that that you should bow down to no man? Um, as an idol or a worship object, sure. Yeah. And I, and I don't know. I just thought that's what he got that from that. that he, since he was a Jew, he was taught not to bow down to anybody. Yeah. Well, uh, again, there is. People came in and bowed down to David, King David, and and they weren't bowing to him as a God. They were just bowing to him because he's the king. That was that was that was quite common, and we honestly would have if it were the tradition of how you met a uh, ruler that you bowed before the ruler, uh, then that would uh, be what you would do, and it wouldn't be that you're caught in a king. Yeah, John. Didn't they save the whole Jewish nation from being destroyed? Yeah. Well, see, that hasn't happened yet in this. Right here, because yeah. when he said he was going to destroy them. He had the authority, they had the authority, the rules had all been sent out, kill them all. 
And then yeah. they stopped it. Yes, exactly. Uh, but when you're at chapter 3, when Mordecai first wouldn't bow, there had been no decree yet. That's the only thing I'm saying. So, yeah, that decree is going to come after that. There, there's no doubt about it because Haman is really angry. <laughs> angry. He's angry that Mordecai wouldn't bow. So that's why, that's why I'm pointing out is a trigger there. Well, I, I think you have to kind of make one of two assumptions here. Because I, I agree, I don't think this is about idol worship and that Haman's saying, I'm God, so you have to bow down. Either, potentially you say, Mordecai sounds super stubborn and he's got some issues he's got to deal with. Uh, another potential here, though, is that Mordecai recognizes that Haman is an Agai guy. Right. And that the relationship that, that he and Haman have has a few ancestral issues with it. And right. because of that, he's refusing to know. Yeah, and I, I believe that absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to get into that in... Not a moment tonight, but in a moment next week, we will get into that. And just as John said, there is a there is a rub here as between what Haman is and what Mordecai is doing. It's just at this point in the story, this is what I want you to see. At this point in the story, you're kind of throwing your hands up and going, um, what? <laughs> I mean, I, I remember years and years and years ago reading this and going, what are you doing, Mordecai? But then you read this Agagite picture, and then you're realizing something quite different uh, uh, is going on. You know, Esther, Mordecai, and all the Jews mentioned in this book are not ones who returned to Jerusalem, not ones who, when the decree went out by Cyrus, that you could go back and build the temple, you could go back and build your home. These Jews don't do it. That's interesting. Well, some of them wouldn't have, but, but of course, most of the people who went back to build, the, build Jerusalem and rebuild it had not been, you know, had not been that way. Some of the older ones had, but that was the way it is. So anyway, we're looking at that unique character. We'll pick that up next week. Please, please bring your sheet back, and we will uh, go on looking at big picture of the story. Thank you.